Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Kyle, my friend. Buongiorno. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Sometimes I'll ask people how they're doing, and they say I'm doing well, and mm. most of the times I say good. Yeah, yeah. It just makes me feel like an idiot, you know? You shouldn't. You should feel... I think that's the difference between... I know it's the, it's the difference between proper English, yeah. and, but for me, it's, it's like the difference between... British and American. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you answer that question, good. You we know, good. You know, we, good. you know what where you come from. Where, yeah, absolutely. Where you hail from. True that. I'm gonna open up a, a can of soda so the whole audience can listen to Wait this beautiful it. sound. You ready? That's satisfying. Oh boy. It's like M. Uh, what's what's the ASMR? You you don't know what that is. You're not an, you're not an internet guy. ASMR. Don't tell me because I feel like I who because you do don't have tell kids, me. Kids, so you might you might have stumbled across it. I guess. I, I, Ooh, so now you've confused me. Um, it, it, Don't read too much into that. It re- it reminds me like I, I remember w- listening to an episode of um, This American Life or Radio Lab okay. or something, and that that is what it, it brings to my mind. What is it? What does it mean? Yeah, I don't honestly. I don't even know what the letters stand for, but it's like. It has to do with like sound. Like people are like breaking yes, things into microphones, and yeah, and they're like they yeah. like um, they talk in like a, this real sultry way, and yes. there's like little pops and like. Yep. And and people and people say that it like that it it listens so good it feels so good the way it sounds something it's, like that it's very weird to me it like is I, weird. the the whole ASMR thing I don't get it and I think that the people who do get it are weird so <laughs> yeah so it, <laughs> so it's either like a weird little kink thing like psychological or maybe those people have some kind of wiring in their brain that you and I don't have maybe so when I listen to it all I hear is a weird a weird person. Who shouldn't be? Dude, what? Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I think the, the the weirdest ASMR for me is listening to people eat. That's mm. a thing. That is like a pet peeve of mine. Ooh. Like listening to people chew yeah. and shit like that. I'll yell at you for that. You know what That's, I mean? Uh, so will my wife. Yeah. She so it's just it, internet. It's just interesting. People are crazy. People are uh, weird. Yes, indeed. All right, so it's been three minutes. How about we get to this uh, this topic oh, today? So, oh, I think we should talk about some other stuff first. Okay, yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, let's get into it. Well, this is the thing, man. I, uh, you know, like running in the circles that we run in and uh, having the interests that we have, um, I've heard the name Timothy Leary. Yeah. Uh, many times. Yeah. Mostly from Duncan Trussell. <laughs> Mostly from Duncan. Uh, never really looked into it, though. So, like, what I, what I took away from that was... Um, that uh sorry i just saw a low battery warning on your phone and i was like oh that's gonna be a problem yeah it probably will be um in any case what was i saying um timothy leary, timothy leary. Yeah. sure yeah so anyway um 
I never really did any research, and like what I took away from all the little tidbits that I collected about Timothy Leary was that he was obviously involved with uh, psychedelics and LSD in particular. He was um, an academic, and he was like a Harvard Harvard guy. Yep. I don't know if he was part of the Harvard LSD experiments or not. Maybe. No, I don't. Oh, you mean like an actual like a person in them? No, like the the. Yeah, if, he, if he was the one that was doing that research. Yeah, yeah, he was okay, definitely he was the involved guy. in that, yeah. Okay, so I heard a little bit about that, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, and and then, like, the, all that happened right around the same time psychedelics were made illegal. Yeah. So that's what I knew. I didn't know anything else about Timothy Leary. Yeah. How about you? Um, I, You know, I, I've heard a little bit about Timothy Leary. In a message that you sent to me, you compared him to, like, the, uh, the Hunter S. Thompson of psychedelics, and I totally... I, from what I know about Timothy Leary, that makes perfect sense to me. Yes. Um, you know, he. I, I think the first thing, or the main thing that I know about Timothy Leary is that catchphrase that he has. Mm. Uh, what is it? Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Yep, yep. Which is a good one, you know. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's all pretty surface level, I would say, that I know about Timothy Leary. Some of the stuff that I know about him, like I know that... Like you said, the the kind of things that we're interested in, a lot of people treat him like a hero, understandably. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, from what I understand, did some pretty shitty things, See, you know? Yeah, and that's what I found super interesting because I didn't know why uh, Timothy Leary's research <clears throat> would have made him a target for uh, the law, which is what I learned about him, that he had lots of trouble with the law, yeah. which was a surprise. I didn't know all that because I just imagined like a buttoned-up academic – is not somebody who's going to be in handcuffs, yeah. you know, or or escaping from jail because we're going to talk about that. Oh yeah, I didn't know any of that stuff. Yeah, I'd heard some of that stuff before too. Dude, that's so so interesting. Yeah, the, and the fact that I that nobody who ever talked about it ever that I heard ever brought that up is amazing to me. And and I and I told you, and maybe I told you, and I thought this that when I watched the um, that El Chapo series on Netflix, what was it called? I don't know. I didn't watch it. Oh, it was really good. Was it? Is it that the Narcos? Uh, or is that a different? I might be confusing it with. It might be Narcos, but anyway, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The point is, it was a really good miniseries that was done about it. The whole thing, because um, <coughs> no, you know what? No, it was Escobar. It wasn't Chapel. Oh, okay. Uh, because he was a larger than life figure, and his life was actually super interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see with Timothy Leary. I'm like, you can make this a series on HBO or on Netflix tomorrow. Yeah. And I don't understand why that's not been done. That's a good. I mean, hopefully it does happen. I would. I would watch that for sure. Oh God! And I had no idea that his life story was that interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just my ignorance or. Um, I've heard his. Have you ever heard his son on any podcast? Like I've heard mm-hmm. him on Duncan's podcast. What's before. What's his name? I'm drawing a blank. Oh uh, boy! Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he's got a son, and his son talks about. Uh, um, you know his experiences with him and things like that. It's pretty interesting. Uh, again, a lot of that is kind of slipping my brain, but um, that is out there for you know if you're interested in it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I um I should should probably listen to more of Duncan's podcast. I did a little bit in the early days. Yeah, uh, but I did look forward to whenever he was on Rogan. That those were my oh, yeah. favorites. Absolutely, I think it, the, the episodes with him and Rogan are good because. You've got Rogan there to like counterbalance, you know, it's crazy. Like a little yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, when it's just Duncan, don't get me wrong, I do love that podcast and I listen to it on occasion. But uh, sometimes, it, you know, I just don't really agree with too much of what's being said. Yeah. So, 
Hey, another thing I wanted to say about the uh, Timothy Leary business before I forget is that, um, and this was straight out of a documentary. I can't remember. Maybe it was, I can't remember, but straight out of a documentary where they were talking about the 60s and when um, these psychedelic uh, hippies um, in college, in these important prestigious colleges in the like physics departments started getting into um, quantum physics in connection with psychedelic drugs, that that's, that was supposed to be a really promising area of research. Mm-hmm. And there was like, you know, it was like, finally, we have these enlightened people that are scientists. Like, finally, we have we have this this type of scientist that we always thought, this creative type of scientist who can look past, you know, yep. the the, bo- the boundaries and... You not know, a bean counter. Not a bean counter, right? Then, yep. that we're, you know, we're going to open up the doors to, to all this, who knows what kind of magic we're going to discover. And uh, that Timothy Leary was a part of that. And that none of that came to fruition. And, and, the, and again, maybe this is one-sided because this is the way the culture is, but... The documentary that I'm referring to portrayed that as um, a bunch of a bunch of hippies on a compound pretending to be scientists, writing a bunch of hippie philosophy and nothing of 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 substance or or merit. Yeah, I just like who are you to judge? Like why why do I value your opinion on what was going on? Even if you're right, okay. Like even if uh, from your point of view, that's really all that was going on there. Yep. I am not you, and you think very differently from me. You know, these people, the mainstream media, who's feeding you that narrative. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just don't... It it is a shame that that's kind of what it's been painted as. And I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about gets painted as, like, hippy-dippy bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's just nothing nothing to be taken seriously, you know what I mean? So, you know, that's something that, you know, you see a lot, I guess. Yeah. What's funny, I'm I'm preparing a... uh solo series on maps of meaning because we talk so much about Jordan Peterson I'm like I'm going to have to just tell people about Jordan Peterson yeah, man. because otherwise uh otherwise Matt Matt who listens every week is going to get more and more upset with me so I'm just <laughs> going to lay it out there and explain who the guy is and what he what he's all about sure um but I started talking about him for a reason that I can no longer remember um we were talking about the perception of like hippy dippy nonsense of the stuff that we talk about a lot um mm. society and how they just write it off they yeah it's not it's not high enough on the thread for me to grasp it yeah. but i'll tell you one thing <clears throat> i'll tell you one thing i read an article about timothy leary uh that was really well done it was so well done like it was like almost like a like a summary of a biography kind of thing mm-hmm. it was so well done that in like four or five pages i had like all the highlights. It was like the Sparks Nose version. So I read that, and it was basically... I'm just going to be relying heavily on this one article. Um, but there was a guy uh, who wrote um, the documentary... Uh, not a documentary, a biography recently, relatively recently, on Timothy Leary, and it's called The Most Dangerous Man in America is what the book is called. The guy's name is Bill Minutaglio, something like that. That's a last name there. That's a last name. The reason the reason I bring this guy up is because I want to read to you this um, quote from the guy that wrote the the um, autobiography or the autobiography the but the biography on Timothy Leary, and and well just let me read it here. All right, he said he's kind of you know a Mister Magoo on acid, if you will. He's just tripping his way through life, and circumstances happen. Okay, now. First of all, I, I know I, I put a little tone to that, but what is what? How does that sound to you? What would you say, Bill, who wrote that who wrote that sentence, thinks of Timothy Leary? Sounds to me like he thinks he's an idiot. You know, like he's um, just stumbling his way. Like you know, no purpose, no no um, intention. Yep. 
and any success he had, it was accidental. It was just yeah. circumstance. And how does this? How does how does Bill feel about uh, psychedelic drugs and acid? Do you think? I think that he probably looks down on them. Yeah, it doesn't seem good. Well, he's describing somebody who who spent his life researching them as Mister Magoo, yeah. and said he's tripping his way through life as though that's not a deeply meaningful experience to have, but one that's like you know a waste of time. Yep. So you know you can dig a lot into what what this Bill I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name again thinks about Timothy Leary, but I, the reason I point that out is because when you read the story of Timothy Leary's life, that that passage that I just read mm-hmm. not only rings false as fuck, but it's like the guy didn't. It's like the guy didn't know Timothy Leary at all, or that he has an agenda that he, his mind was made up before he even wrote that. Yeah, uh, the whole time you were reading that, you kept saying Bill, and in my mind, I was making it Bill Buckley because mm. Bill Buckley's a piece of shit just like that. He'll he write people off without knowing anything about them. Mm. Uh, but that yeah, but no, that's Bill. Managugliano, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, Minutaglio, Minutag, something like that, guys. You know, whatever. So anyway, my, my, and my note <clears throat> that I wrote uh, after this um, quote from Bill is, nope, this dude was not a saint. He was the Hunter S. Thompson of, of academics. That's, that's what I took away from it, honestly. Yeah. And this article, guys, if you guys are interested in it, it's uh, from August of 2019. Um it's all that's interesting.com forward slash Timothy hyphen Leary if you want to read the article. But we're gonna we're gonna basically give you all the highlights. All right. So this is what I want to do. Unless you have anything to add. No, not yet. I want to I want to talk through the background of T- Timothy Leary's life, like his biography, kind of um, point by point. Um, and I'm gonna save like some of the interesting stuff for later on so we're going to try to just give you like a, a kind of a brief idea of his of his life from start to finish got it so here we go he was born in 1920 in massachusetts east coast fella he um <clears throat> was enlisted in uh, the military served in the second world war uh and it's not it's not clear to me that he served a whole term it says he served some time but i really don't know but yeah. he was he was in the military during the second world I war i think it was kind of yeah, I, I think that he had problems in the military. I can't. I don't know the details of it, but I think he was not in for a very long mm. time. It's like, all right, you're good. You're, no, no to you, Timothy yeah. Leary. Well, that so. that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, not at all. I mean, somebody like Timothy Leary. I mean, oof, I mean, I don't want to like assume. Maybe I should shut my mouth. But he just doesn't seem like a like a manly man in particular. Although he was a little bit of a poon hound. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's a tough guy. Is what I mean yeah. to say. Yeah. And um, he seems like the kind of person just from what we're going to talk about in a bit, that's probably a very progressive liberal type guy. Um, so I'm guessing he probably didn't have a lot of support for war. He probably mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of support for guns. You know, he probably, you know, I just feel like the military probably wasn't a great spot for him. So you just like divided me on two issues right there, war and guns. I just can't agree <laughs> completely with Timothy Leary on the, but yeah, I mean, uh, I think, I don't think he saw any war, you know, I don't think he saw any battle time. I, I, I seem to remember that he avoided a lot of that and that he avoided a lot of the depression too because his dad was like a doctor or something like that. So he was so like a lot of the more negative aspects that the people of his, um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, a lot of the more negative things that the people of his generation experienced, 
he didn't really experience those things. He didn't experience the war. It didn't mm. experience the depression yeah. as much. So, well, that's interesting because he would have been nine, he would have been nine years old when the when the Great Depression mm-hmm. started. That's a terrible time to have lived through that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's it's interesting. My mom's side of the family. I, this is I, I know very little about them, but this is one thing that my mom told me that during the Depression, that her grandmother, uh, their family had two cars during the depression. Okay. So this was the time when not everybody had a car. Yeah. They had two cars. So I don't know where that money went. <clears throat> I do not know. Cause it didn't trickle down to me or my, <laughs> or my mom. But, uh, but yeah, apparently they, they were also quite sheltered from the, the depression. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so he lives through the depression. Um, he, he fights in the second world war for a bit. Uh, when he gets back, he uh, goes to University of Berkeley, uh, University of California at Berkeley. He gets his PhD in clinical psychology. So this is it's like, I mean, that, I guess this would be a little bit before, but Berkeley—that's like hippie central. Hippie central, absolutely. But I, I think the time that he was there probably would have been a little bit before that, right? Like, I mean, he's a yes. young man, so this is like forties, probably. Um, yeah, so we'll get there because I think a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that gets him in trouble is happening in the late fifties. Okay. Um, so anyway, so he, so he goes from, um, the military in the second world war to, uh, to Berkeley. He earns his degree and then, uh, basically normal middle-class life at this point, a couple of kids working, working at some universities in the, in the Bay area in California. He's married. Um, he's doing some research for the Kaiser family foundation, whatever that might be. His work at the time was focused on personality, uh, uh, personality tests and things like that, which I think is interesting because also Jordan Peterson's um, work, apart from teaching, is in that realm and personality tests. And he's always talking about, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, just a just an aside. An, an, an aside to JVP. Uh, okay. So personality uh, um in, uh, tests and so, so forth and then right around 57 he publishes his first book which is about personality disorders so this guy's deep in in um you know psychological research he's a professor you know he's uh you know got a degree from um you know uh fr- from the university of california he's got a couple of kids and a wife it's all normal stuff is it seems like his career is progressing he's got his first book published you know i'm trying to set the stage this is what his life is like yep on the rise. It's on the, on the rise, yeah. All right, so the next year, 1958, he ends up moving to Spain. He takes his, his family to Spain. España. And at the time, he has some kind of, uh, he gets sick. Uh, I, I didn't look into the details, but it's, it said mysterious illness, whatever that means. He gets sick, and he was delirious. He had a period of time where he was delirious in this, in this sickness. And it's interesting, because when you and I talked about uh, the mystic experience and different ways in which you can achieve that, you know, psychedelics being one of them and, uh, um, and fever, high fever is, is another, is another thing that can produce, that can produce very similar types of things. So something like this was going on with Timothy Leary. He's, uh, he comes out of this experience and his, the quote, the thing that he says is I was 38, I was a 38 year old male animal with two cubs high, completely free. This is how he described the experience of, of this delirium that, that he was in. Yeah. So he has his kids. He's in another country. He probably feels pretty, you know, pretty isolated and, and distant. And uh, he's, you know, responsible for taking care of his kids without any family or friends or whatever around. Gets sick. 
uh, I'm assuming so sick that he wasn't able to care for his kids during this delirium. And when he describes it, he says, I was a 38-year-old male animal with two cubs. High, completely free. What do you think about that? uh, That sounds like the language he's using is confusing. It's like in some ways it sounds like he's saying I'm completely free. Um, that sounds scary to me. Being like high as hell, having having your two kids needing to take care of them. You know, that's like mm. anytime that I've taken a substance, the last the thing that one of the things that I'm most worried about is surprise responsibility. You know oh I mean? yeah, yeah. Uh, so like having that built in responsibility, I, that would I would be intimidated by that. Yeah, I can, I can definitely understand. So there's, so that's something about set and setting that we talked about uh, mm-hmm. before. Um, you do not want any surprises. You know, if you're trying to control set and setting, you don't want any surprises. But the worst kind of surprise is one that requires you to do something, mm-hmm. and that you that you see that something is important. You don't want to be responsible for yeah. that. And especially like if you don't want somebody to know that you're tripping too, that adds a lot of pressure. To oh yeah, good them, luck. You know? Good, yeah, yeah. good luck. So anyway, man, I, I read this. I read this quote here where he's basically saying that he's this 38 year old male animal with two cubs he make he makes the distinction that he feels more primal he feels less mm-hmm. in his head he feels more like an animal than a man and he's protecting his cubs uh rather than you know his kids yeah so it's like it, I, he, to me it sort of seems like he's describing this state of being where he felt less human more more primal visceral more you know instinctual something like that okay that makes sense. I know that if he's 38, that like three years previous to this, his wife killed herself, committed suicide mm. on his birthday. Mm. Um, and then the year after that, his father died. So that stuff is going to put you in a weird headspace in the first place, you know? And then you have this fever dream. And who, like, you know, you have no idea what the, the that mystic experience is going to have you focusing on, and mm. you know, oh yeah. Uh, so I could just see that being like a, a time where you're like mentally ripe for that kind of an experience. Ooh. You know what I mean? Yeah. See, I feel like the '50s were such a buttoned-up time mm-hmm. that a man w- wasn't allowed to be sensitive or to have emotions. So you, if you if you had something terrible, like traumatic, like your wife killing herself happening to you, and being in an, in another country with no support, having to pre- take care of your kids by yourself and being deathly sick. You know, like these are things that, um, it seems like the, the 1950s is not, uh, is not the place for that. It's the place for law and order. Mm-hmm. It's the place for cut and dry and no gray. And, uh, um, then, then he describes that as being high and completely free. That's, it, it's interesting because this is, seems to be the turning point in his life and it has to do with, well, he's going to kind of basically be high for the rest of his life at this point. Yeah. It's crazy that he got such a late start. You know, I don't think I really put as much conscious thought in because this isn't even psychedelics. This he's thirty eight, and this isn't even psychedelics. Yeah. This is a fever. So yep. that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So this is what happens. So he has this experience, and then uh, and then shortly after this, he ends up coming back to the U.S. and he takes a position at Harvard, lecturing at Harvard. Mm-hmm. So okay, so just to recap, this guy's career has been on the upswing. Apart from this information you, you dropped about his wife, which I was saving for later, thank oh. you very much. Uh, <laughs> uh, everything's going pretty well for him. He's published the book. Now he's working at Harvard. If you were a, if you were an academic, I can't imagine a better place to be. This this guy must have felt like he had he had 
succeeded in what he had tried to do. He's working at the most prestigious university in the world. Uh, he's got a book published. Here we are. All right, so he takes a trip to Mexico, Kyle. Yep. At this point, he takes a trip to Mexico. And at, in, during this trip, he, he ends up having a trip. Da, da, da. He has his first experience with psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico. And it says in the article I read that his experimenting with psilocybin in Mexico might have been related to him trying to recreate that delirium he had in Europe. Okay. Because it, it, was, such a, it was such an amazing experience for him. He wanted to chase after that. Um, so something like that. So maybe, maybe this is the reason why he, this buttoned up academic would go to another country and take this crazy fringe drug at the time that almost nobody in the Western world knew much about. Yeah. All right. So he comes back from Mexico and, uh, creates the Harvard psilocybin project with, uh, a friend of his named Richard Alpert, who you guys will know as Ram Dass. Ram Dass. What do you know about Ram Dass, Kyle? Very little. Me too. I was hoping you knew what I've heard from Duncan. Basically. (laughs) Um, seems like an interesting guy. Um, I mean, that's like the understatement of the century, but, uh, yeah, I just don't know much about Ram Dass. Yeah. Me either. Um, okay. So then, so then Leary and Alpert, uh, were working together with, um, psilocybin originally, and then later LSD and check this out. This work they were doing together at Harvard they were giving psilocybin, but mostly they were giving LSD to their colleagues at work, so other people there in the university. Some prison inmates. Okay, so, I mean, to me that seems like something that the, lib- the liberals would, would not agree with today. It's kind of like um, using these poor, marginalized people in prison yeah. as like... As like um, Did they have no choice? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I would assume they probably did have choice, but, um, but using a population like that, you know, you can kind of look at that as like the way they they used to test makeup products on animals and like people were, you know, PETA was up in arms about it. It's like, this is the image that comes in my head. Like they're, they're using these inmates as, you know, guinea pigs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't give a, I mean, I, you know, you said liberal, you know, the more liberal people, I don't give a fuck though. If these, if they asked a bunch of prisoners, Hey, do you want to be involved in this? And those prisoners say yes. Then who gives a shit? I mean, and that's and the stuff that they were looking into. It had to do with like recidivism and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so I mean, that's you know, whatever, man. It's yeah, good. it's good for the world. Yeah, I wonder what the I wonder what the follow follow up research was with these inmates. <laughs> I really I really wonder. I actually remember hearing something about it, and it was something like, at first there was like it was like whoa, like these people aren't coming back to prison. Um, but then it like reverted back to the mean kind of, but the things that they were getting brought back for were like significantly like less serious crimes. Mm. So who knows? I mean, it could be nothing at all, but. Well, that's interesting. So, so these guys are sharing the LSD with their colleagues, with these prison inmates. And here's where they fucked up a group of divinity students. Oh, so I can understand that they might, because if you've ever done a psychedelic like LSD, you understand that there's some religious, there's a religious part of the experience. So you might, you might wonder, well, if we give this drug to people who are studying religion, who are, you know, those types of people, you know, how will they, how will they interpret the experience? You know, that, that seems like an interesting question. Yeah. The problem is a lot of these kids were 18 years old. Oh, okay. In the fifties. Yeah. And when mommy and daddy found out about that, 
They were not happy. Got it. Okay. So this is the downfall. Uh, be, this is where it begins. I, uh, a quick aside for me is uh, there's a guy that I would like to do an episode on eventually, and I don't know if he was involved in these LSD experiments or different LSD experiments, maybe in Berkeley later on. Mm. Uh, but it's Ted Kaczynski. Oh, yeah. You ever hear about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he, he could have potentially been one of the people in these studies, although I don't. I don't know about this one. Yeah, I can't, you're right. I, I I did remember that, and I and I didn't uh, I didn't know if this was the same exact research. Or I not. think it was the the stuff that was happening in California. Because there were more, <clears throat> there were more guys than just um, Albert and Leary. There were there yeah. were more of them. So, yeah. um, okay. So, uh, at this point, um, like I said, parents found out that these kids, these college kids, and not, not just college kids, we're talking about. Harvard college kids. We're talking about the kids of rich parents, mm -hmm. ridiculously rich parents. They're powerful with powerful friends. Find out about that this is going on. They're very upset. And so there's lots of controversy at the time. Uh, there was rumors that they were that they were pressuring the students to participate and that they were giving the drug to undergrads, so very young college kids. Um, and then by 1963, Harvard lets uh, Alpert and Leary go mm -hmm. fuck you guys you're 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 muddying muddying up the water you're interfering with our with our uh the contributions for our from our alumni and all this we got to get we got to get you guys out of here i heard that timothy leary got let go for additional things as well like he was not going to classes he would like have his secretary like tell the kids to read stuff and like be in california you know yeah i did i did hear that too and which is that adds to the Hunter S. Thompson thing for me, you know, it's Absolutely. like Hunter did what the fuck he wanted to do, you know, so. And I think and I think Leary did whatever the fuck yeah. he wanted to do. Absolutely. And we'll talk about that more in, in the second part of this segment, because that's where I basically compiled all that stuff. I wonder if Hunter and Timothy Leary ever met. That's a good question. I'm going to have to look into that. That's a good question, man. All right. So. All right. So this is what happened. So. So Leary gets fired from Harvard. You can imagine he's like. Going from the top of his career to the seemingly bottom, he's you know the bottom drops out. This poor guy, mm -hmm. um, his wife his wife has passed away. You know his career is seemingly over. But this is what happens: um, the Mellon family. Um, I don't know if that's B Y Mellon, if that's like the like Carnegie a banking, Mellon, Carnegie Mellon. I don't yeah. know if it's like a banking family. I didn't look it up, but it's just a rich family in in uh, New York. Um, they're they're interested in the stuff that Leary's talking about. They're interested in the psychedelics. They're interested in this um, <clears throat> hippie movement and all that. That's that's beginning. Where are the cool base? But I guess we have Elon. Yeah, we got Elon. So the, so the Mellon folks, they buy this giant mansion in New York and they just offer it to Leary and Ramdas and yeah. say, you can do your psychedelic research here. Here's Bring a, the hippies. Here's a place for you. Yeah. Giant mansion in New York. And so that's what they do. So by 1965, which is two years later, Leary says it says that Leary is the leading public advocate for LSD and for psychedelic drugs. So he's now a public figure. He's managed to get himself uh, back in the limelight, probably with his melon money, um, spreading the word, spreading the gospel of LSD. Um, a, a year later, he's brought before this. He's brought before the United States Senate because they're not happy about this. Yeah. Um, and at this time, LSD is basically an, an unknown. You know, they know very little about it. And just like anything, when there's fear, when you don't know about it, there's fear. And in the and in this buttoned up culture of the 
60s or the late 50s kind of changing into this hippie hippie time it's there's a lot of tension there yeah that fear is still here today by the way you some of you probably know the fear um but yeah just that's, absolutely yeah so he gets he gets dragged up in front of so and, and i just want to again i'm gonna go back to the timeline here he gets fired uh in 1963 by 1965 he's back in the public in the public eye and by 1966 they have him in front of congress or in front of senate rather uh um you know at, at this hearing uh giving him all these questions peppering with questions trying to decide whether lsd should be made legal and these psychedelics should be made legal so i i, I get images of uh of um uh, Zuckerberg when he was when he was yeah. pulled up in front of Senate and he was super nervous and you know didn't belong there and yeah. um I don't know how Leary would have held up in front of Senate probably better than Zuckerberg I'm guessing probably uh because he's kind of a smart ass he's kind of that kind of guy mm-hmm. all right so that was 1966 um Ted Kennedy he um asks Leary if LSD was dangerous during the Senate hearings and Leary says the motor car is dangerous if used improperly. Human stupidity and ignorance is the only danger human beings face in this world. That, that's that's how he responded to Senator Ted Kennedy about that question. It's a great answer. He's a, he, so you, he's a smartass. Yeah. I mean, he is a smartass, but I mean, just a smartass bringing the truth. You know, like that. that is like inarguable. Yes, I, I agree. But it's it's also disrespectful, oh, and, and in that day, talking shit to a senator, yeah, and, and not any senator, but Ted Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, you know, that's that's a ballsy thing to do on you know on television, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. So of course, the Senate's decision at that time was to go ahead and make it illegal, um, maybe not because of the the danger of it so much as um, Leary's disrespect and you know it might have it might have been just as much a matter of spite f- as a matter of public safety yeah at, the, at this point so illegal and are you thinking about the pineapple express, pineapple that's express. exactly what i was thinking about the entire time <laughs> that eye patch motherfucker <laughs> okay <laughs> i hope you guys know pineapple express otherwise you're completely lost right now yeah go back and watch pineapple express you'll 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 get it all right all right, so this is funny. Th- at this point, I just want you to—I just want you to just follow me here because the Senate's just decided to make LSD legal. Leary has spent his entire academic career studying psychedelics and doing this private research with the melon money that, that him and his buddies are in this mansion. His entire life's been dedicated to LSD. Obviously, he thinks it's extremely valuable from from a scientific perspective. It's something that he wants to share with the world. He's been vocal about it. It's just been made illegal. What happens? So it's, it's this, the Senate hearing was 1966. In 1967, Leary creates the League for Spiritual Discovery. So he creates a religious organization whose spiritual practice center around the use of LSD. Hell yeah. So this is his first idea. Well, okay, you're going to make LSD illegal? I'm not a scientist anymore. I'm a, I'm a preacher. I'm going to I'm going to start a church and we're going to have this we're going to have an exemption. We're going to have this exemption for spirit, spiritual reasons and I can still use LSD and still study it. Yeah. That's his, that's his first move. Yeah, something tells me that doesn't work out that well for him. It does not. Uh, it does not. Um, so a couple years later here, uh, 1969, um, he this is the same day that he won his appeal from a 1965 marijuana arrest, which we haven't talked about, but we will. 
he announces his candidacy for the governorship of California. Nice. Okay, so in 1967, he starts a church because he wants to be able to keep using LSD. The government says no. The government says no. So he goes, I'm just going to be the governor. I'm just, <laughs> okay, you're not going to let me use use LSD from a scientific perspective. You're not going to let me use it uh, under the guise of a religious perspective. So I'm just going to, you know, become the man myself so I can make the laws and, and can do it anyway. Yep. What, a, what a ballsy guy. He's a tenacious son of a bitch. So he's a serious academic. Then he's this, then he's this like, um... Uh, he's this black market scientist, basically, and th- and then he's a, pre- a priest. <laughs> he's a priest of a brand new LSD religion, and now he's running for the governorship. That's 1969. And 19- by 1970, he was convicted um, of, mar- of marijuana possession and given 20 years in jail. Oh, so I just want you to know the Senate. The Senate said, you know, Timothy Leary, you're the expert on this. You're the guy that's in the public eye. Should we make LSD illegal? He makes a smart ass remark. Uh, they make it illegal. He decides to run for governor so he can change the rules. They put him in jail for 20 years within, a, within sentence, a year. Man. Like, 20 nope, years. You don't get to be a preacher. You don't get to be the governor. We're going we're gonna to lock you away now yeah. for the rest of your life, basically. At, th- at this point, this is where Richard Nixon famously says that Leary is the most dangerous man in America. It's interesting. Which is the name of that, name of that biography we talked about earlier, the most dangerous man in America. Yeah. I guess it depends on what you're uh, worried about protecting. The most dangerous man. I can't, I just can't imagine. Um, I mean, this was a, this was a, never mind, man. This is, this is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And like I said, Timothy Leary could be considered the most dangerous man in America. It just depends on what you're trying to protect. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. If you're protecting the status quo, then yeah, you might be afraid of Timothy Leary. Mm. And you probably should be. Mm. So, I mean, the dude was very obviously trying to change things. Very. So, I can understand why old tricky dick Nixon... Who I think it's a little bit of a bad rap, to be honest with you, as far as presidents go. But um, well, this, this was a short-sighted decision on Nixon's part. Uh, but with yeah. a, with a public, you know, outcry at the time, what are you going to do, man? What are you going to do? You, yeah. give, you give him twenty years in jail, you get rid of the problem, and you know that's what he did. Yep. So at this point, this is where things get interesting. Um, Leary again, he's he's fallen a very long way. Um, he thought he was going to weasel out of this in a legitimate way. He seemed to, he wanted to be legitimate. He seemed to, wanted to do it at Harvard. He couldn't. Now he's, now he's this clandestine guy. And, you know, he seemed to want to be legitimate by making it a religion. He seemed to want to be legitimate, but he's not given that chance. Now he's been given basically a life sentence and he says, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So he, he gets up and leaves. This is interesting. So this is the sixties. Now the hippie movements, you know, well up and running. He goes with the uh, Black Panthers government in exile in Algeria. So, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I, again, I don't know the details there, but presumably the Black Panther Party um, ha- had a bunch of folks move to Africa and lived there claiming to be the legitimate government of the black uh, population of the United States. But because of the, because of the, gov- the legitimate government not 
recognizing it, they, they've now moved to Africa and they're going to sort of have this quasi-government that's really just a show from over there yeah. and so that they can organize and figure out what their next move is. This is where Leary goes when he doesn't want to go to jail. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to partner up with these Black Panthers. I'm going to go to Africa and hide out here with you. Yeah. What do you think of that? That's uh, That sounds like something from a fiction movie. That sounds like Forrest Gump, only, you know cooler <laughs> yeah it also sounds like something hunter s thompson would do absolutely so um so here he is in algeria and he brought his wife there his is the second wife at this point and uh, what happens is he ends up having a falling out with the black panthers because they partied too much so I, i'm guessing he was doing all the all the psychedelics there or whatever he was doing i don't know how he got a hold of it in algeria but he did and um the black panthers basically put them both under house arrest now so you have to imagine they're in a a country that basically doesn't have law and order the way we know it. They're under the thumb of this small group that, you know, ha has weapons and, and they're like, be, you know, being sheltered by them. And now they've been told they can't leave they, that they, you know, that they're naughty and that, that they, you know, now they're prisoners. Now they're prisoners. Yep. That's crazy. So, so Leary was going to be in jail for 20 years, flees the country to go to Africa and, and becomes a prisoner anyway. Yep, different different type of prison. I mean, he didn't he didn't go to prison at all in America. Not yet. Oh, okay. He's still he's still got more ahead of him. He's I still gotcha. got more ahead of him. So at this point, uh, Leary and his wife escape. I don't know how they escape, but they do, and they decide wisely to go somewhere less uh, with with more law and order. They go to Switzerland. All right. So he and his wife they escape. They go to Switzerland, but they end up they end up. In Switzerland, we're living with an arms dealer. Yeah, I heard about that. Living with a fucking arms dealer. Yeah, that is another, like, right out of a fucking movie, man. I mean, you can't write it. No. How did this guy have friends that were Black Panthers that were that were willing to bring him to Africa and hide him and his family? And then, he, and then to escape them, he has a buddy who's an arms dealer in Switzerland? What in the hell? What in the hell, man? What in the hell is right? I mean... It, I, I don't really know much about what happens with him and the arms dealer, but I have to imagine it's it doesn't end well. It's not good, Kyle. Yeah, I, I have to imagine it doesn't end well. Because this, this is what happens. It, when he finally gets to Switzerland with the arms dealer, um, it seems like maybe as, as payment for, you know, um, for getting him out of Algeria and giving him a place to, to stay or whatever – that he basically forced Leary to sign over 30% of the money from any of his books forever into, into the perpetuity. What the fuck? So, the, yeah, so this arms dealer is basically pension the guy now, um, and he forces him to sign, over, sign this over to him. So he ends up um, agreeing to do that. But then he didn't publish anything. Okay. And the arms, the arms dealer was not happy about that. Yeah. So the arms dealer called the cops and said, I've got Timothy Leary. Come get him. Wow. And and his rationale for that was saying that maybe he would be more productive in prison. Oh shit! Nothing to do sitting there in a yeah. cell. All right. I mean, I can see it. That's that's a low down dirty play by that arms dealer. You can't call the cops if you're an arms dealer. <laughs> that's ridiculous. It, you know, it it just, I, it all this seems unfair to some degree, but um, but we haven't really talked about the bad stuff yet, and I think there's some karma in, at play here. Yeah. Because every time something good happens to him, something bad happens to him. Mm -hmm. He escapes, and then he gets, then he's on house arrest. He yep. escapes, and now he's now he's thrown back in jail. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. You got it. All right, so 
he ends up escaping again, um, even after the authorities in Sw- in Switzerland were on to him. Okay, um, and uh, here's where things start to get interesting. All right, so um, so he finally gets arrested by the American authorities, and these are like drug enforcement authorities, but I, I never heard of them before, so I think they're like international. The American Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Hmm. So maybe that's now something called something else or yeah, whatever. Probably. But the reason I say the international is because he was arrested in Afghanistan. Okay, damn. So he he so when he left Switzerland, he escaped. No idea what happened to him between, but he ends up in Afghanistan. In 1972, <clears throat> he gets arrested and sent to Folsom Prison. Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. All right. And not only was he sent to Folsom Prison, which is uh, you know, it's got a reputation. He was put in solitary confinement. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I wasn't he in there for like a long ass time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it's terrible because, uh, I mean, psychologically, solitary confinement is very, very, very hard. Mm-hmm. And you know, you might even call it cruel and unu- unusual punishment, basically. But they did that out of spite. And maybe, maybe if he was in general population, he would have he would have been done. You know, maybe he would, maybe he would have been killed. I don't know, but he was, that's true, but he was, you know, he was a fugitive from justice. So they put him in the worst possible jail and in the worst possible way in solitary confinement. Got it. For all, for the crime of, of having, seeing the value, the, the scientific and social value of psychedelics. Yeah. That is a, I mean, what are the, what are the charges that they got him on for that? I mean, it just uh, is this still the weed thing? Is this still related to the yeah. weed thing? Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that next, okay. so I'll save it for just a bit. But so this was 1972 when he gets put into Folsom Prison. By 1976, he gets released um, by the governor Jerry Brown in California, who releases him from prison um, uh, a couple years down the road. So he was in jail for you know four years approximately. And then, and then nothing really interesting from here uh, up until when he dies. The, the reason I want to talk about this is because um, he was diagnosed with, with prostate cancer in the 90s. So he was uh, in the 70s. Um, in 1996, obviously you and I were kids, um, he, he put his death on the air. So he's laying there in his deathbed, dying. And he's he's like he, I know this is this is the end. Yeah. Um. He's got his family around him and all that. He put that on the on the air for people to see. And when he it was a live broadcast of his dying, and that was what he wanted. And when he died, his last words were, "Why not? Why not? Why not?" That's a that's a true psychedelic voyager's attitude right there. Mm. Why not? Now, what color, Kyle? What color are the notes on this page? Blood red. The red. The red. And this, so this is the thing, man. I, I, t- I deleted all of the questionable stuff from the biography just to lay out the start to finish what happened to him. Now I want to start talking about the karma situation because at this point, you, you probably agree, it seems like Timothy Leary had a hard life and got, and got the short end of the stick uh, for reasons that were really not his fault. You know, like the government was making an example out of him and punishing him you know, not because of some anything he did, mm-hmm. but because they because what he represented. Yeah, that's how it seems to me. But that's not entirely true. Let's let's talk about the black marks on Timothy Leary's character because uh, there's a lot to talk about. And yep. this and this is the color that I think would already the story is a good story. You can make it a miniseries. Yeah. Now this is all the colorful stuff that you'll see 
we'll make you know there's no reason why this isn't a miniseries yeah it so, like this uh, this is the stuff that turns him from a straight up hero into like more of an anti-hero i think you yes know? yeah and a more complicated character and uh, more realistic um this is this is the I don't want to say the real Timothy Leary because I'm going to talk about a bunch of bad stuff here. Yeah. But it, it's the other side. It's the, it's the you know, people are com- are complex. They're not, you know, unidimensional. So here we go. So he was kicked out of West Point Military Academy because he drank too much. So this is, um, you know, the most prestigious military academy. You know, this is West Point. Um, he gets kicked out of there. So I don't know what that says. He was young at the time. I don't know what that says about his character, but it's a black mark on his record, basically. Um, after after that time period, so like right around the early 40s, he, he was expelled from the University of Alabama. So this was, uh, you remember, he, he ended up getting his degree from Berkeley. Um, so this was prior to that. This was his first attempt at college, you might say. He gets kicked out of the University of Alabama because he spent a night in the female dormitory. Mm-hmm. My man. <laughs> so again, you know, another very Hunter S. Thompson-y sort of thing. Yep. All right, so... Um, so, go ahead. Actually, I compared him to Forrest Gump earlier. That's a scene from Forrest Gump. What is? When Forrest Gump takes Jenny back to her dorm and and stays the <laughs> night with her. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. All right, so next. Some of Leary's colleagues accused him of failing to give them credit for their contributions to his first book. So you remember in 57, he got that first book published. This is right before he, you know, he, he breaks it big and gets his lecturing job at Harvard. Um, so apparently there was, there was contributions to that that he never credited his, his colleagues with. He's taking all the credit for it. Yep. Also kind of a Hunter S. thompson thing. Yeah. Shitty. Shitty. You know, yep, definitely not good. All right. You, you brought up his first wife committing suicide. Mm-hmm. So here's a little bit about that. Um, it, it, so the story goes when she confronted him about him cheating on her. And this is a little bit of a theme. You know, you can going back to his night in the female dormitory. He's a little bit of a, a little bit of a coxman, this guy. Um, when she when she confronted him about it, uh, his response to her was, that's your problem. And she committed suicide. Not nice. Now, that's that's your problem. That's kind of a. Hearsay, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, who yeah. knows, but it's just something that adds a little color to the story. Yeah, that is the type of thing that I have a really hard time imagining somebody who's done psychedelics saying to somebody, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's just interesting that that all came before. Oh, yeah, that's a good you know. point. Uh, before, you know, his psycho- psychedelic enlightenment, you might yeah, say. Yeah. But funny, though, because he was married twice after this. Yeah. Which means it didn't work out again and didn't work out again. Yep. So, and again, I don't, I don't want to say that people that are married more than once, you know, that that's, that's any sort of reflection on them, you know, shit, I was married before and, you know, yeah. it happens. Um, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that, I mean, it, it's almost, you look at how crazy his life is and take away even the bad stuff, just the craziness that's going on all around him. It doesn't surprise me that like maybe some of his wives were like, "No, nah, I'm I don't want to do this." <laughs> no, know? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so he was married a few more times, and then he got arrested for marijuana in Texas in 1965. He got arrested for it again in 1968 in California. At that point, he said, 
the police planted the drugs on him that it wasn't his. Like, dude, you got busted in Texas a couple of years ago for the same thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know if maybe they were even back in 65 trying to trying to pin him with drugs at the time or if this guy was just smoking pot, you know. It yeah. seems more realistic that this hippie guy in the 60s was just smoking pot. Yeah, more, more than likely. And to, and to claim that the drugs were planted on you, um, you know, that just seems like an immature thing to do. Just take resp- be a man, take responsibility. That's the way I look at it. Nah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree because I feel like even if they didn't plant the drugs on him, they're they're hassling him. They're giving him a hard time very intentionally. And I think fuck these people. You know, like make make life hard for them. Go yeah. for it. Uh, I think that that's great. Yeah. So. Well, this was yeah, this was sixty eight. So that's yeah, they were they did have it out for him at yeah. this point. Um, okay, so in 1970, I told you he was given 20 year 20 years in jail, but really it was two it was two 10 year back to back sentences for two different charges. This is where he escapes from the California Men's Colony Prison. Uh, so he was actually in jail and escaped from jail yeah. in the United States. I mean, how many people could do? How many people have done that? <coughs> I mean, Shawshank Redemption was a hell of a movie. It's got to be a, a small margin. <laughs> Small margin. So anyway, he escapes. This is how he escapes. You remember how earlier we were talking about he had he had buddies in the Black Panthers in Algeria and mm-hmm. this arms dealer buddy in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Well, the, he escapes from from prison in 1970 with the help of the Weathermen. Yep. Who become the Weather Underground, and yes, the, the, these are the people who. Um, well, these these are the people who became largely uh, academics mm-hmm. and and were influ- Bill Ayers. Bill Ayers, yep, were influences on people like Barack Obama. Yeah, almost makes you think Barack Obama might have been kind of cool in some way, mm. but no, not really. Well, we know he uh, he and, and he inhaled when he smoked. At least he he yeah, didn't he didn't true. he didn't go the Bill Clinton route on that one. So anyway, he escapes with the help of the weathermen. I don't know how they smuggled him out of jail, but they did. They so uh, th- there's an interesting bit that I heard about this, and I don't know if it's true or not. But you know how early in his psychologist career, he made, you know, he he came to prominence doing like those uh, personality tests. Yep. Well, he developed a test that they would have people going into prison take to decide mm. what level of security they needed to be in. Gotcha. And when he did that, it was the test that he developed. So he knew how to answer it oh. to get into a minimum security prison from which it was easier to break him Dude, out. Dude, that's an amazing part of the story. Yeah. Guys, how is this not a movie? No, no, a miniseries. How is this not yeah. a miniseries? Fuck movies. This guy goes, <laughs> this guy ends up in jail and he's able to manipulate himself into the best possible place to escape because crazy. the personality test he's taking, he fucking wrote it. He yeah. invented it. That's amazing. Yes, it is. So he ends up escaping and the weathermen not only get him out of prison, but they t- they get him and his wife out of the country. Mm-hmm. So they do that. Um, and then when he was arrested in Switzerland, he escapes again. Um, when he was finally apprehended by the authorities in the United States, what does he do? He throws the weathermen directly under the bus. Shitty. He's like, I got to get out of this problem. I'm just gonna talk. Yeah. Shitty. So, so the yeah, shitty. So you know, he was he was a little bit of a poon hound. He was cheating on his wife. He was doing a lot of drugs. He was disrespectful to Senate. He you know w- worked with these radical these radical guys that you know bombed buildings and shit. And uh, you know he he was he, he you know he, he doesn't have uh, a lot of a lot of moral character. This guy. Uh, and and it, the the you know mess the the like having a bunch of uh, sex and all that stuff doesn't bother me so much. Yeah. But something like this, even though the weathermen are not nobody that I would be um, defending, 
you know, from a philosophical point of view, the fact that he turned around and threw them under the bus to me is like, dude, that's that's a cardinal sin. Yeah, um, that's the one of the worst possible things you can do. Yeah, I mean, you sh- you should be loyal to to people, you know, like the people who are helping you at least, you know, at least. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, it's definitely those are definitely some serious black marks, uh, and that stuff. Like, I don't give, I don't care about disrespecting the Senate. I think that's cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get you. But that stuff, I, I, honestly, it is more meaningful to me that he betrayed a bunch of terrorists than mm. that he, you know, like disrespected the Senate yeah. or a, any of the other, like the sex, like you were talking about, the drugs. I don't, that's fine. Do that stuff. That's fine. Sure. Um, but don't betray your terrorist buddies, you <laughs> know? Yeah, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, there's something about, like you say, there's something about loyalty that uh, it's like a cardinal sin. It's like yeah. for me, it's it's uh, it's like, like I would put infidelity in that same category. It's like that kind of betrayal is mm-hmm. it's it says something about your character that that no other sin does. It's like you know, true that. It's to me, it's even worse than murder. It's like I can murder somebody accidentally, sure, but I can't betray you accidentally. Yeah, that's very you, deliberate, Judas. You son of a bitch. Yeah, I think. The comparison between him and Hunter S. Thompson, I think, has to stop there because Hunter was crazy. I mean, Hunter might have done. I mean, everyone does some shitty things, but I haven't heard like this laundry list of like betraying people. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, You're right. So, but I still, I still really do want to know if they met. I'm yeah. looking that up. That's a meeting of the minds right there. So the the other thing that I wanted to, I didn't include in the notes, at least I didn't see it in there, is that um, when when Leary was getting like the word out publicly. The way he managed to do that was to make friends with uh, originally like like a poet, and uh, then he got into like Hollywood, and maybe mm-hmm. I, no, maybe it's here. Let me let me read through this, and then we'll we'll talk about it. But uh, he basically he basically became a little bit like um, he 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 liked being in the public eye. Sure. So he kind of that kind of represented a little bit of a character flaw because he ended up sort of chasing after the fame after a little while. Yeah. And even even his kids, or his kid, I think it was, said something negative about that. So anyway, I, I, I talked about all those black marks and we talked about how interesting his life story was, but the name of this episode is What Happened to Timothy Leary. Well, we really haven't talked about why this guy is important to talk about at all other than the fact that the government had it out for him and that he managed to elude justice for so long mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, it, it was undeserved um, on his part. But he did make contributions. He was a sci- actual scientist. He had oh. books published. He, he, he made actual contributions to, uh, to the psychedelic research. So I want to talk about that. Absolutely. So now let's talk about the, uh, well, if, if those were black marks, what are these? Um, star stickers? Little sure, smiley yeah, face stickers? Like okay. That. All right. The smiley face stickers. I like star stickers better. Star stickers. All right. Scratch and sniff. Sure. Absolutely. All right. So, um, so, so Leary wrote about the divinity students that were participating in his experiment at Harvard. Um, and he said that it showed that spiritual ecstasy, religious revelation and union with God were now directly accessible. So what Le- what Leary was saying was that like this was like a eureka moment. I-, I can see him like shouting this from the rooftops. I've found this technology that's going to allow people to be able to basically at the press of a button have a religious experience. 
Um, this is a this is an extremely uh, important experience. It's uh, when people have it, they they generally rate it as one of the top three experiences of their entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's available at the touch of a button. He's, he thinks that he's give, able to give the world this great gift that is something that used to be elusive. And now we know the secret of it. And all you have to do is put that thing in your mouth and off you go. Reliably inducing these mystical experiences. He thinks that's going to change the world. So I think his good intentions there are something that's worth note. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he also reported um, that uh, the subjects in that divinity experiment, that they had profound mystical and spiritual experiences, which permanently altered their lives in a very positive manner. So when we talk about like the research that's going on now with psychedelics, um, treating PTSD and what, what else are they doing? They're doing uh, addiction, addiction, de- depression, yep, all kinds of stuff. Exactly. So he, he noted that way back then that, that when people have these experiences, that it alters their lives in a permanent way, in a mm-hmm. positive way. So he was the first person to notice that. Um, and people wrote that off as a hippie nonsense, justifying the use of drugs. Yeah. You're, just, you're just justifying it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a big contribution. I mean, even if you take it out of the realm of academia, I don't think that you can write off the mystic experiences of millions of people i mean I, I mean i don't know how many people do you think have had mystic experiences over the uh, lots of millions. fucking people millions. you know and they're not going to stop either yeah and I, I just don't even if it's not this academic thing i just don't think that you can write that off i no. think that that's important if if these people outside of an academic setting have taken these things and they feel that they've improved their lives that's something to be you know, and he helped spread that. That's that's a scratch and sniff snicker. For sure. <laughs> it is. Now, if you were if you were a legitimate scientist, and the question came up, like these experiences are possible with this chemical, so what's happening? That's a, that's a question that, as a scientist, you'd want to research. You'd want to know the answer to. There's a you know, if there's a benefit uh, to the experience, or even just the fact that the experience is possible gives you questions that you need to understand. And any good scientist will want to do research on that to understand what's causing this, how is it happening, what is it doing, what are the long-term effects, what are the short-term effects, all that shit. Yeah. A scientist should be curious. Absolutely. Um, all right, so I, you know the reason I kind of rant about that is just because the attitude towards drugs are, for our entire lives has been so negative yeah. that there's been no research allowed on it, which is like the most anti-liberal, the most anti-scientific stance I can possibly imagine. Yep. And um, anyway, I'm on a little bit of a different, a different high horse there. <laughs> so back to the good stuff. While he was at that mansion in New York, it's called Millbrook, while he was there, um, he didn't have Harvard University over his shoulder. He didn't have anybody telling him what he could and couldn't do. Yeah. He could have done whatever he wanted. He had the he had the money from the Mellon family. He had this giant mansion. He he had no oversight. He could do whatever he wanted. And his biographer made a note that even while he was at Millbrook, it said Leary's methods for experimenting with LSD were still fairly structured and organized, especially when compared to how LSD was being used by other prominent 1960s counterculture experimenters. Okay. So Again, this guy has no no oversight, no rules, you know, you know, and you can see he plays fast and loose with the rules anyway. He could have done whatever he wanted, and he still had a structured, careful, scientific approach with LSD. Yeah. Even even when he had no oversight. 
Yeah. That is a commendable thing. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would do that. He's yeah, like, just like, well, you know, experimentation, you know. Uh, I agree with you. That is uh, that is commendable. That's like, makes you think that that's just in his nature. Like that kind of meticulous, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are like that. It's like, when you're when you're forced to do something, you don't you're not that into it, and you don't want to do it. But it seems like he's really interested in it, so he wants it to be very regimented. Yes. You know, he cares about it. Exactly, exactly. And that's the point that I like to make. That I think I'm trying to make here is that Leary wanted his research to be valuable and to be able to be used by scientists. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, he could have taken this LSD stuff to the limits and pushed it to see what was possible, and he wanted to do that. Yeah, but he. He held himself back, and he did it carefully and measuredly, and or, in an organized way, so that his research was actually meaningful and acceptable, and could be used and could be relied on. Um, that, to me, is like um, you've heard of that. You've heard of that experiment where you give uh, you give a marshmallow to uh, to a, like a what is it like a four year old or three year old or something? Oh, yeah. You give a marshmallow to him, and you say you know you leave the room for twelve minutes. You say if you don't eat this marshmallow when I get back, you can have two. Mm-hmm. And they say pe- the kids who eat the one marshmallow who can't resist it, that those people do uh, when they follow up with them thirty years later, do much po- more poorly in life than the people who were able to wait and 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 eat yep. get the two. This is what I'm saying. Leary waited for the second for the second marshmallow. Okay, he held himself back. He waited for the second marshmallow. It's not easy to do. A lot, a lot of people can't do that, and he managed to do it because it was important to him to do it right. Yeah, that says something good about him. It's interesting to me too because so much other stuff in his character makes it seem like he would grab that first marshmallow. Yes, you know, but for some reason, that's the thing. He, like you said, it's it's a matter of caring about it. I think you yeah. you prolong uh, it, it. It like changes your time preference. High time, you know. I wonder how many marshmallows he grabbed in the dormitory that night. So anyway, um, but I think the the point, the point is well taken is that he that he was a scientist. He was doing this as a scientist would do it. He wasn't he wasn't doing it like uh, Nixon portrayed that he was doing it. Yeah, like just a crazy hippie. Okay, so here's the other thing we we mentioned this earlier that Leary and Alpert's research that they pioneered this idea of set and setting being um, important with. Uh, psychedelics. I didn't know that in a therapy in a therapeutic manner. They, be, I mean, obviously it's a shamanic thing. It goes way sure. back in history, but they were the first people in a scientific setting to say, "Hey, these drugs work better if you can control the set and setting." They formalized this idea of set and setting uh, and brought that to the world. Um, there's a guy named Tom Wolfe who wrote a book called "The Electric Kool Aid Acid Test," mm-hmm. and he describes set and setting like this. He he says, "The set was the set of your mind." You should prepare for the experience by meditating upon the state of your being and deciding what you hope to discover or achieve on this voyage into the self. You should also have a guide who has taken LSD himself and is familiar with the various stages of the experience and whom you know and trust. So this is, um, you know, basically coming coming from a guy who learned about set and setting from Timothy Leary. Yeah. You don't know Tom Wolf? Um, just I've heard just of the this? electric coolant acid test, but that's it. Yeah, he's a cool guy. I mean, that's basically all I've heard of too. But I've I've seen like interviews and stuff. He's a cool guy. He's like, I, 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 if him and Tom Wolf know each other, then I think that him and Hunter must have known each other because Hunter and Tom Wolf knew each other. Oh, they did. Yeah. Uh, have you read the electric coolant acid? I've test? never read it. No. Oh, we should read it, man. Yeah, that'd be fun. maybe we'll do an episode. We'll do a book report on that'd it. Be all cool. right, cool. 
All right, here, so here's what I wanted to say um, earlier. So Leary befriended Allen Ginsberg. So he gets this poet friend who's famous. Who uh, I'm pretty sure was a child molester, but... You oh, know. he was? Yeah, yeah. Oh, jeez. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway he, he, so he, but the point is he, he befriends this famous guy, and then he ends up getting all these introductions to celebrities and intellectuals that are, that are in the public eye through Ginsberg. And... Um, and it said Larry's courting of prominent figures was a strategic ploy to further his work on psychedelics. So he used all these new connections he was making and opportunities to be seen publicly and all that. He just he just used it to, to spread the word about psychedelics as best he could. So he's kind of a little bit of a evangelical type, you might yep. say. Uh, and then it said Leary promoted the drug uh, on a foundation of doctoral credentials and regimented experiments. So up to the very end, that's what Leary said, that how the drug should be used. So he promoted LSD use from uh, with a foundation of doctoral credentials. He's saying this should be used by people who know what who know what they're what they're getting into, uh, maybe academics, people studying it um, and regimented experimentation. So very scientific approach to the very end. This is what he Encouraged. Yep. All right. Then he literally promoted his pro psychedelic message through speaking tours. Uh, again, another Jordan Peterson comparison. Going going to college campuses and go, going to different places and speaking and spreading the word that way. Um, but he, and he used a lot of his celebrity influence then to to you know get a bigger audience. Gotcha. And then in 1994, uh, when he died in 90, what was it 96, he wrote a book called Chaos and Cyberculture. And in that book, there's a quote uh, I'll read to you. It says, the time has come to talk cheerfully and joke sassily about personal responsibility for managing the dying process. Now, obviously, this was two years before he died. But the reason I the reason I find this interesting is because this is one of the areas of psychedelic research today. It's coping with dying. Mm -hmm. And And they think the scientists are already studying it, that people who have terminal cancer, who do who have a. Uh, psilocybin experience it reduces the fear anxiety of death for me, for most people who have that level of experience they don't they no longer fear death at all yeah and in 1994 leary said this was the direction for psychedelic research that's uh definitely ahead of his time yeah all right so i got a couple of uh leary quotes um let's see so we can do a little bit from the from the mouth of the man himself. How about that? Right. You're gonna like this one, Kyle. So Leary, I'll, this is I I made the note here. This is his anti-authoritarian, but quote. But here it goes. To think for yourself, you must question authority and learn how to put yourself in a state of vulnerable open-mindedness, chaotic, confused vulnerability to inform yourself. So to think for yourself, you must question authority and learn how to put yourself in a state of vulnerability and open-mindedness. Yep. Uh, I think that that seems kind of counterintuitive to a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of like the typical conservative types in America think of themselves as anti-authoritarian. Mm-hmm. They're not. They just like a different kind of authoritarian. Yes. But they think of themselves that way. And I think if you ask them, they would say, no, I don't need to make myself vulnerable. That sounds like the last thing that I want. Right. But it's, I, I'm more with a Leary on this one. No, it's true. It's true. It's something that, um, something that Jordan Peterson says about culture. 
it's like uh, culture constrains us. Uh, you know, people who don't follow the rules, they don't they don't fit into the culture. They don't belong. Um, it, so it constrains us. But if we don't question the culture, that will we can't transform it. We can't adapt the culture to the new world. The world's always changing. So it's important to question authority. If you don't question authority, then the culture doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't change, then we go the way of the Maya. We just disappear. Yep. Um, so I think that's that's important. All right, so I want to talk uh, from the mouth of Leary on about the mystic experience. So I've got a couple here. Uh, I'll read. I'll read the long one. I'll read the long one here, Kyle. It goes like this. This is Leary talking about the psychedelic experience. A psychedelic experience is a journey to new realms of consciousness. The scope and content of the experience is limitless, but its characteristic features are the transcendence of verbal concepts, of space-time dimensions, and of the ego or identity. Such experiences of enlarged consciousness can occur in a variety of ways, sensory deprivation, yoga, disciplined meditation, religious or aesthetic exercises, or or spontaneously. And I think when he says spontaneously, maybe he's referring to his his delirium that he had. Um, Most recently, they have become available to anyone through the ingestion of psychedelic drugs such as LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, etc. Of course, the drug does... Of course, the drug does not produce the transcendent experience. It merely acts as a chemical key. It opens the mind, frees the nervous system of its ordinary patterns and structures. The fact of the matter is that all apparent forms of matter and body are momentary clusters of energy. We are little more than flickers of a multidimensional television screen. This realization directly experienced can be delightful. You suddenly wake up from the delusion of separate form and hook up to the cosmic dance. Consciousness slides along the wave matrices silently at the speed of light. Yeah. So that's Leary's description of a mystic experience. You know, listening to you read that, I can almost... See, I've had these experiences, so I know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. I can understand why somebody who's not had those experiences thinks that it, that it's hippie nonsense. One hundred percent. You know, um, but it, it is weird. It's just that experience. It like you have to have that experience, and then it like you totally know what he's on, what he's talking about. Yeah. So you remember when we were talking about um, we're talking about Jordan Peterson's uh, description of um, um, what was it like representation? And I was talk I was talking about how you have to have like this psychic stand in like this avatar in your brain for an unexperienced uh, event or person or, or yeah. anything unexperienced so that you can map onto it that you have to have this psych- psychic projection whatever that is I don't really understand it all that well um, and I, that was important for this conversation for a reason that, that I'm struggling to get back to <laughs> what were you uh, uh, um, I was just talking about the experience separating like people understanding and not under, understanding oh, what he's oh, talking oh. about that, that's what I mean yeah. so it's like uh, an experience like this a psychedelic experience uh, when you have that mystical blast off it, it is it's not something that you've experienced bef- ever before oh. so you don't have the ability to understand yes. it I so got it. that once you have the experience, then you have that scaffolding in your brain that you need to understand it. And until you do, it's like there's nothing there to map to it. Yeah. Do you so, remember thinking about psychedelics before you had done them? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Like I knew that I wanted to do them, had never done them, just imagining what it would feel like. Yep. 
Um, I don't know. It just like jogged something loose in my brain when you were talking about that. Yeah. For me, for me, thinking about it was nothing. It was nothing but fear of the, of the unknown. It was like, yeah, you know, I've heard, I've heard stories and it all sounds terrifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, very, Absolutely. very fearful. And it, you're just completely wrong too. You're completely wrong. Yeah, yeah. You have no idea. No idea. So it's exactly right. So anybody, anybody listening who's never done them, you have no idea. All of your preconceived no- notions, you've got, you've got no idea. Yep. Just put them away. All right. Uh, do you want to read this? this sure, one here, read one. Here. The, the 100%. Yep. yep. Go ahead. Uh, I am 100% in favor of the intelligent use of drugs and 1,000% against the thoughtless use of them, whether caffeine or LSD. Yep. Should I keep going there? Yeah, keep going. People ask me how many times I've taken LSD, and I don't count, but it's the same thing when they ask me how many times I've made love. The answer is not enough. (laughs) Hey. Uh, LSD is a psychedelic drug with occasional... Occasional, which occasionally causes psychedelic behavior in people who have not taken it. Psychotic. Psychotic. Man, Read that one again. Start over, Kyle. LSD is a psychedelic drug which occasionally causes psychotic behavior in people who have not taken it. <laughs> that's right. That's good. That's right. So he's, you know, he's definitely got a little bit of wit, but that's, but, uh, but you know, I, I, I think these quotes speak well of him. I mean, yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are. You got anything on it, on this? No, I mean, you know, that, First one, I am one, 100% in favor of intelligent use of drugs and 1,000 against uh, the thoughtless use of them. It's like, uh, no, I completely agree with that. Uh, I think... Um, well, you know, sorry to interrupt. No, but, you're good, you're but good. But that, that, what you just read coming out of the mouth, that's the same guy that, that Nixon said is the most dangerous that's man true. in America. That's a great point. He's the most dangerous man. Um, but again, it that that depends on what you're trying to protect because i think i don't know man like do you think nixon knew anything about drugs mm, probably not probably not yeah so maybe maybe he was legitimately fearful just alcohol just, just alcohol. alcohol yeah that's true um what else do we got here wait well, this just wit here i mean the uh the thing about um uh people ask how many times i've taken lsd the answer is not enough, not enough. yeah and uh and then the one about um that LSD does cause does cause psychotic behavior just in the people who haven't taken it. That's pretty good. Yeah, that is good. All right, so I, because we talk about the mystical experience here, I want to talk a little bit on my, um, my my side of the argument about understanding through a mystic experience that that God is that man that that creation is the same thing as God that the cosmos and God are the same thing, and He gives us little tidbits that He underst- understands this, and I want to read them to you. All right. He says, whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it is, that it is your mind which, which creates them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one, you create the realities you inhabit. You create the realities you inhabit. The next one, any reality is an opinion. We make up our own reality. And the last one, you can be anyone this time around. So, so, you know, that one, you can be anyone this time around. It's, I mean, obviously it is sort of a reference to reincarnation or that the, that the soul is, is, um, is, uh, eternal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that you can be anyone means you have control. You have complete control. You're the architect of your, of, of yourself and your reality. Yeah. That that's, I mean, again, whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it's your mind, it's created them. So he's, he's telling you that, that your consciousness create it creates 
yourself and your reality. Mm-hmm. How is that not the same thing as saying you're God? Con- seems, consciousness is God. Yep, that seems to go right in hand with it. All right, Leary. I think I, I concur, buddy. I can, can concur with you on this. Uh, I think that the you can be anyone this time around. I think that that's uh, with psychedelics. You hear people talk about, um, like new beginnings and stuff like that too. And I mm. think that that's uh, something to think about. Is you can be anyone you want this time around, but this time around is you realizing that you can change. Mm. You know. Yes. So that's something to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's connected to the idea of um, the idea of rebirth from a religious perspective. Um, it's even, even along the lines of uh, what we're going to talk about when we do this Sacred Mushroom and the Cross episode mm-hmm. um, about the be- being born again and the resurrection story from the Christian perspective um, actually being something like what you just described, how when you have a sufficiently powerful psychedelic experience, you literally are not the same person when you come back to to consciousness, Absolutely. you know, you've been reborn. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really good. Um, so, let's see here. What do we uh, got? I'm gonna read. A, I'm gonna read a Leary quote. Uh, I'm gonna read a Leary quote for you here. I believe that a new philosophy will be created by those who were born after Hiroshima, which will dramatically change the human condition. It will have these characteristics. It will be scientific in essence and science fiction in style. It will be based on the expansion of consciousness, understanding, and the control of the nervous system, producing a quantum leap in intellectual efficiency and emotional equilibrium. And three, politically, it will stress individualism, decentralization of authority, a live and let live tolerance of, ind- of difference, local option, and a, and a mind-your-own-business libertarianism. So this is Leary's kind of prophecy about what the future will hold. What, what do you what do you think of that? Uh, I like it. It's the way that I would like for it to go. And I think some things, I mean, he really hit some things on the head. Some of it is still kind of unfolding. Yes. So I mean, definitely the the scientific essence and science fiction and style. That's definitely um, characteristic of of our culture for sure. For sure. We you know we're. Uh, we're a very empirical uh, culture now. We're very science. You know, we rely on science, and we also rely on science to bring about the future. And we use we we allow our imaginations to run wild about what science will do to the world in the future. You know, every science fiction movie, every you know, every new technology that comes out, uh, you know, is is telling us that is is reinforcing that. That's we absolutely are like that. Yep. So I get that. And then what was the second one? Based on expansion of consciousness, understanding and the control of the nervous system, producing a quantum leap in intellectual efficiency and emotional equilibrium. What does that make you think of? Um, I mean, it makes me think of like Neuralink. You brought up Elon Musk earlier. Yeah, it exactly. makes you think of Neuralink. It sure does. Um, and, and the way Joe Rogan always talks about the kind of that uh, in the future, the distant future being like, able to read basically people's intentions and thoughts with, without a filter, without a filter of language, that what that would do is um, be a quantum leap in the intellectual efficiency and, emo- and emotional equilibrium. So I think that that's kind of in, along that same vein. Yep. Uh, the third one I'm less hopeful about. Yeah. But uh, honestly, I'm not. Like, maybe it won't be in my lifetime, but I really do think that this 
progression that he's talking about um, with the other two, I think that it will inevitably lead to what he's talking about in three. That's interesting. I I'm, I hope that you're right. the The idea of stressing individualism is the in, is the polar opposite of what's happening today. We're stre- we're stressing group identity, and uh, you know, I think that's I've told you many times. I think that that's going to lead straight to, to hell. That's not a good strategy at all. Yep. Um, so that's the opposite. The decentralization of authority, again, we're kind of looking at the opposite. Uh, totally. You know, in, in that regard. In fact, there are many people in the world that would like the government of the world to be one giant, um, you know, United Nations system yep. and, wor- and world court system. No, thank you. And uh, then this laissez-faire business about having a libertarian um, mind your own business, uh, you know, I mean, I, I would love that, but I, I do think I'm with you that I don't think that we're going to, we're going in the opposite direction of a lot of that stuff, at least institutionally. Mm-hmm. But especially this last part, uh, after he talks about the decentralization of authority, because we're not doing that at all. But then after that, he says a live and let live tolerance of difference, local option, and mind your own business libertarianism. Yep. I do feel like that is kind of the way that our culture of people is going. Like we, you think about like um, gay marriage. It's like people mm. who cares. Nobody cares. Um, and I do think that as a group of people, not bound together by some state, I do feel like that is kind of how people are progressing. Is to just like whatever, leave, yeah. do what you want. Just don't fuck with me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the 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 um, liberality that we have with social policies. Um, and I'm, I say policies, but I don't want to. I don't want to connect it to government because I don't think we need the government to be, to be enlightened people. You know, we don't need it to come down by fiat or by law yeah. that the culture changes, uh, you know, naturally and that we are a more accepting, uh, culture than we ever were. Yep. That's, that's on the people. That's a hearts and minds thing. That, that's not coming from, from the government. Yep. Um, so, uh, but I, I, you definitely do see that and it's better in that way than it's ever been in my life up until the last couple of years. Yeah. But yeah, everything with the actual institutions, it, you're, I mean, it, it's just completely going in the opposite direction on that, that third part. Yep. But he was on that, on, hit the nail on the head with that other stuff, man. It's weird how some of these people from history, these cool figures like Tim, Timothy Leary, like you go back and look at their quotes and you're like, man, did, like, was this guy here? Did he mm. get in the time machine and come here? Yes. I think Rogan's going to be like that in the future, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I think people are going to be like, man, fuck Joe Rogan. He knew some shit. It's going to be more likely to happen to Joe Rogan because he's got so much, like, published speaking. You know, it's he, he's, he's bound to say something insightful. You know it might I mean? be tarnished by a bunch of dumb shit that he said, too. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll leave, we'll leave that up to YouTube yeah. to decide. All right, so um, I'm going to bring a couple of... A couple of things to you here, Kyle. Um, right. An article from the New York Times that I wanted to talk about. I thought this was a good place to, to do it. It's called The Psychedelic Revolution is Coming. Psychiatry may never be the same. This was uh, an article just came out uh, a couple, 13 days ago, so yeah. early in May. Uh, and it talks about Rick Doblin's MDMA research. Now, I heard about Rick Doblin's MDMA research strictly from Rogan. I, you know, I didn't research it you know, beyond that. Um, but I knew it was going on. Um, here's the big news. His MDMA-assisted therapy research is now moved to phase three clinical trials to treat PTSD and traumatic brain injury, things like that. So he's using MDMA for treating PTSD. Stage three means it's this close to becoming uh, a drug. That's crazy. Now, if MDMA has 
medical uses, then it can no longer be Schedule 1. Yeah. So that's actually really, really encouraging. That is awesome. Um, Rick, Rick Doblin is the dude who does that MAPS Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The just curious. Multi, multi, multidisciplinary. What is it? Multidisciplinary. I don't know. I know that uh, it's called maps. Okay. That's yeah. all I got for you. Psychedelic studies group. Yep. yep. Um, all right. And then, and then this same week here in May, there's um, a New England Journal of Medicine study that documented the benefits of treating depression with psilocybin. So that. Um, again, the New England peer-reviewed journal of medicine, prestigious medical journal now has an article talking about the effectiveness of magic mushrooms to treat depression taken with Rick Doblin's stage three clinical trials research with MDMA and depression and uh, PTSD. And the quote from the article is, it's only a matter of time before the FDA grants approval for psychoactive compounds to be used therapeutically. The moment that happens, everything that Richard Nixon did to make uh, psychedelics um, controlled, mm-hmm. all of that goes away. That's incredible. Lastly, uh, there was an episode of uh, Jordan Peterson. It was uh, season four, episode 20. He did it with a guy named Roland Griffiths, who is a um, PhD uh, uh, academic, uh, at the, the director of the Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research at John Hopkins School of Medicine. So a very, very prestigious guy. And Jordan has a conversation with him, and he says this. He says that um, that in a trial study that he's doing at Johns Hopkins, um, five grams of psilocybin were given to research um, subjects. Five grams is what is what um, Terrence McKenna called the the hero's journey. Is the what Joe Rogan says is the heroic dose. Yep. Five grams is a big dose of magic mushrooms. So this is what he's doing. Uh, people who had the, the five grams of psilocybin said it was the mom, one of the most significant experiences of their of their lives when they were asked that question two months after the experience. It's a lot of time to process it. Yeah. So 60 days later, they, they come and say, what do you make of that experience? They said it was one of the most significant experiences of my life. The, o- the only comparable experiences are the birth of a child or the death of a parent. That's so, intense. So having a five gram dose of psilocybin is considered as emotionally significant as the birth of a child. So, I mean, as somebody who's had a child, what does that mean? Oh boy. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to put it in into words. Um, but I agree with that statement and I have had, I have had children and I have had myst- a mystic, mystic experiences. And I would agree with that, Yeah. that there are certain experiences that are powerful enough to change the trajectory of your entire life, which means to reevaluate your values and goals in a way that you've never done before mm-hmm. because you never had to do it before. And it's, it's so important and worth it that you will overturn your, all of your c- comfortable routines and all of your, you know, old desires and replace them with something that's cohesive so that you can have this valuable thing like a child in your life. You know, it's that kind of life changing thing. Um, and I would agree that a mystic experience is one of those things. And there's not very many things that are capable of doing that. Yep. I got goosebumps talking about it, Kyle. Okay. All right. So talking about this, uh, Johns Hopkins study. Um, so let's see here. He describes a bad, a bad trip. He says, uh, facing the worst fear of your own creation. See, and that's, that's important when you have a bad trip, uh, 
you're facing the worst fear that you could possibly imagine. It's coming from you, and and that's an important part of uh, important part of the understanding of a psychedelic experience. But it's not something that's obvious to you when you're having it. So if you're having a bad trip, it's important to understand that the thing that's terrifying you is is you're you're inventing it. You're you're showing yourself the scariest thing you could possibly show show yourself in your fa- in, in your kind of fantasy world. So facing the worst fear of your own creation in a psychedelic experience and surviving the encounter creates a real psychological transformation, which instills the notion that, quote, you are more than you thought you were and, quote, more capable than you ever supposed. So that's interesting, man. That's like, what do they call that? Um, uh, Boy, like like those tribal cultures that have ordeals. It's like an ordeal. Got it. What do you think of that? Do, do you know if this was Jordan Peterson talking or if this was the guy talking off Ooh, the top of your head? I don't remember now. Um, it just sounds like Peterson to me. It does. It really does. Um, but no, I mean, what is it? What's it talked to? What is it called? Jordan Peterson talks about it in psychology, you know, in his actual. Pro- oh, uh, exposure training. You yeah. know, it's like if somebody's afraid of an mm-hmm. elevator, first you make them go out and they look at the elevator. Yep. Then they go down the stairs, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then they get a little bit closer next week and, you know, closer. And I think that a bad trip is just like dropping you right into the deep end of that exposure therapy. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but I think it's like the same principle. It's like you have to confront it, you know. Um, only this time it's like it's confronting you kind yeah, of. Yeah, you don't have a choice. Well... That's not true. The moment you confront it, the, the trip begins to change from a bad trip to something else. Sure, it's it, it, you're right. It's kind of like it's kind of like training you to confront your fears. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's interesting. Um, so there's a bunch of bullet points that I put on here about the way that uh, Dr. Griffiths talks about psychedelic experiences, and I just want to read these to you, Kyle. All right. Um, they're described as deeply a deeply meaningful sense of the unity between all things. I can attest to that. Mm -hmm. A deep sense of the truth and reality beyond the ordinary sense of the word. A deep sense of truth and reality beyond the ordinary sense of the word. Okay. It makes people more brave, more willing to encounter difficulties voluntarily. Participants report positive changes in attitude towards life, self, and their emotions. Deeply meaningful and significant, it's called. Even if the trip was bad. Even if it was bad. Yeah. Um, A dramatic increase in trait openness, which is the creativity component of your personality. Um, And and this is Jordan Peterson saying, it's a permanent change. And it's a significant change. One standard deviation. It's measurable. One standard deviation uh, increase in openness. Wow. And I, I have to say that is true for me. Yeah, I was I'm way more creative and open minded uh, thinker than I than I was before I had a mystic experience. And I wouldn't have classified you as like a closed minded guy back then. So the fact that you feel that oh. it's opened you up so much more is I do. that's impressive. I do. Yeah. I used to think so so much. So much was hokum is the word I like to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to think so much was bullshit, and now I'm starting to realize that a lot of the shit I wrote off, I just was too lazy or too close-minded to to 
explore it. And if I would have, I would have seen the value in it. And that, and that's one of those maniacal arrogance things that we talk about. It's like, I was satisfied with what I knew and didn't have to explore that stuff. I could write it off. And that's a terrible way to, to be. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. Uh, so dramatic increase in trade openness. Um, it says always the rewriting of one's personal narrative. Oh, this is this is allows the rewriting of one's personal narrative in accordance with this previously unfathomable mystic experience. So it's you have to you have to kind of once you've had an experience like that, you, when you come to, you have to like be able to merge that experience into your the worldview that you developed. It's like you didn't know that that type of experience was possible. Now you have to reformulate what you think is possible and, and make it all make sense in your head. It's, it's like a, it's an interesting thing. Yep. That is interesting. It's like, uh, you know, the, you have the, the thesis, which is how, you know, life, the antithesis comes with that, that psychedelic mystic experiences. And then the synthesis is what's really important how you incorporate all of that, how you like exactly. bring all of that into your life. Again, that's that, that, that's that rebirth. Yeah. And that makes me, that's why I think that it's significant with that thing, uh, where they're talking about the, like the 60 days later. Yeah. Um, that's why that's interesting to me. That's why that's important to me because they've had time to like really think about it. And I mean, you know, a lot of the times when you come out of that experience, you're like, your brain is like scrambled eggs. All. I mean, yeah. you're not going to make sense. You need some time to like connect the dots. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, that, and that's interesting too, is under, coming to understand that sometimes their experiences are so powerful that you can't understand them in one sitting. You, you can't absorb it all. You have to stew on it. Yeah. And it takes time and effort. That's a strange thing to realize because yeah. there are, there are things like that. Yep. But a lot of the times the stuff that you do, once you've had time to like chew on all of that, it is empowering. It does make you feel like anything is possible. Mm-hmm. I agree with that completely. Um, last couple here, Kyle, there was a terminal cancer study I mentioned earlier um, that used psilocybin that said that there was a dramatic reduction in the fear of death for these cancer patients. Even the ones that survived long enough to like go back to them five years later and mm-hmm. ask them, they five years later were still not afraid to die. That's that's a power. Like I mean, the fear of death that's in us when we're children. So to get rid of, to be getting rid of that, that's a very powerful. That experience has got to be very powerful. I mean, I know that it is, but I guess I'm just trying to sell it to you people. Yeah, and <laughs> and, and I have to say that this is a, this is something I've noticed in myself. Yeah, um, you know, I'm the fear not, of death is gone. Well, it, it means it means several things, like. Like I'm still afraid if I something should happen to me that I have responsibilities I'm leaving behind. You know, it's like I, I, I'm still afraid to leave my family without me, destitute or something. And, I, you know, I've got life insurance and stuff. It's, you know, it's probably fine. But, but I have fears about the pain that it would cause other people that I don't, I don't want that to happen. Yeah. Um, but I'm not afraid of the experience of death. Okay. I'm not afraid of my life being over. So if I, you know, if I died... You know, I want to be alive. I want to keep keep riding this ride. I'm having I'm having a blast. I'm having a blasty blast. Yep. But if it was if if I knew it was going to come to an end, if I had a terminal diagnosis, um, I don't have the fear of that idea that I used to have. And it's not just that it's not as bad. It's that it's gone. Yeah. The idea that I might not be here used to be terrifying because it's like the world disappears because I, because that's how I kind of thought that mm-hmm. my, that the world 
is the world behind my eyes. It's that's the world. It's the world I experience. And if I go away, it's like this darkness replaces it. This nothing replaces it. That that is deeply, deeply scary. And I don't have that anymore. That's an interesting way of explaining why that fear of death goes away. Um, I never really thought about it that way, but I think that that's that makes a lot of sense. Is like until you have these kind of experiences, however you have them, however you get to them. You are. It's like you are the center of the universe. Yes. Um, and when, yeah, when your consciousness goes, I, it's like everything goes. But then you realize that that's not the case. Mm. That uh, that everything else is still going to be here. And I think in some way that means that you are still there. Exactly. Yeah. The fact that that's a good point you bring up about everybody being the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that that is how we experience the world, and the fact that we never. We never often do what you did and put it that way. Like mm-hmm. we all believe that we're the center of the universe and we kind of are. Yeah. That fact of existence is what makes collectivism wrong. It's what makes it impossibly impossible to succeed. Yeah. This whole idea about group identity that we're talking about, that's why it fails because people are all the center of the universe. We're not a group where every one of us believes the world is ours. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in some ways that's, that's true. Uh, but the, another another thing that the psychedelic experience does, or the mystic experience does, is it it makes you identify more with consciousness than with your body. So that's also part of it. It's the idea that consciousness continues, and I know that. So it, when I go, big whoop is yeah. kind of how it's kind of how it seems. Yep. And that's very different from if you would have asked five year old Chris, yeah. you know. If you would have said, "Hey, did you know you're not going to live forever, and you, at some point, at some point, you're not you're going to die?" Yeah. Uh, yeah, it would just be absolutely terrifying. Yep. I uh, just you bring up Jordan Peterson. I try to bring up Tool pretty frequently. Uh, firstly, Tool was brought on stage once by Timothy Leary in like 1993 or something. Really? Like that. Yep. Nice. Um, but th- this was all just making me think of uh, Tool has a a song called eulogy where in the chorus he's talking about how this person always talked about how they weren't afraid to die because of all of this stuff. And it's like, well, so long, you know, like, you know, it's like, well, if you're not afraid to die, then we're not going to be sad about you being gone, you know? Yep. Um, but it was more of like, like he wants them to care, you know, like I want you to care that I'm uh, gone. You know, I just, yeah, yeah. The, just, trying to bring tool in yeah no no uh, that's the, good. the timothy leary connection i think is pretty interesting too because like i said tools just anywhere any of the topics that we we talk about tools just got their fingers in it somehow <laughs> well we do uh, to be fair we've been pretty hyper focused on this one little area that's true oh um, that's true i got a <clears throat> i got a couple of other really interesting points that are gonna that are gonna close this out for us nicely kyle um, I, I added one bullet point that was not a part of this podcast with Dr. Uh, Griffiths that Jordan did, but one that came from jo- Joe Rogan's uh, uh, podcast with Paul Stamets. Okay. Uh, and I, I, my notes just, oh yeah, and neurogenesis with an exclamation point. So we're talking about all this stuff that, all this good stuff that people say about the mystic experience being deeply meaningful, changing their lives in a positive way, removing their fear of death, helping with depression, with PTSD, helping to kind of rewire your brain and your self story. And, and you know, all that synthesis you talked about all these beautiful things that are possible therapeutically with these psychedelics. And, oh yeah, we haven't talked about the most magical one of all. And this goes back to mushroom research and Paul Stamets. If you haven't seen those episodes of Joe Rogan, you should. That cool-ass mushroom hat. That cool-ass mushroom hat. (laughs) Um, 
is he's, he says that the psilocybin studies show something unbelievable. Um, I don't know if you were, were told this growing up. I was that if you do drugs, that it, it'll kill your brain cells mm-hmm. and that they don't grow back. Yep. Can't grow, can't grow back brain cells. They're can't the one, the one thing doesn't heal. Yeah. Well, Paul Stamets says bullshit on that. On, on all of that. On all of that. Apparently the compounds in magic mushrooms are now being studied and have been proven to, well, do something magical, something that was that was previously thought to be impossible, something called neurogenesis, that psilocybin will actually grow new neurons and neural connections in your brain. Boom. Boom. Jesus. Um, and then, of course, Paul Stamets said this. He says, I conclude that we're wired to have these kinds of experiences. He's talking about a mystic experience, mm-hmm. that our brains are designed to allow that type of experience to be possible. So it's just a hidden latent, like it's a little Easter egg in the video game of our brain that if you can find it, it's possible. If you, if you search hard enough and you do the work, you can find this experience that's possible to have. It's already wired up for you, which is also true of the cannabinoid receptors. And and, you know, our body's full of those already, already wired to accept that stuff. Yep. And here's the crazy, here's the crazy bit. In closing, guys, Harvard University, the same university that fired Timothy Leary and disgraced him 58 years ago, now offers a graduate program entitled Psychedelic Chaplaincy at their renowned divinity school. Harvard Divinity School now offers a program called Psychedelic Chaplaincy. What do you think of that, buddy? Chaplaincy. That yes. is an interesting word. I don't think I've ever heard I mean, I know what it means through context, but yeah. I don't think I've ever heard chaplaincy before. That is crazy. I mean, the fact that it is becoming so widely accepted, uh, he really was ahead of his time. I mean, like kind of the father of all of this in America, anyways, oh, yeah. you know, in modern Western culture. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I told my wife about that. I was like, uh, you, know what I, you know what I heard the other day? Harvard. Harvard Divinity School offers a psychedelic ministry program. And she looked at me, her eyes got big, and she was like, oh, you like that, don't you? I was like, I might have to go back to school. <laughs> I, could I get into Harvard? Yeah, um, you probably could. You know, I never, ever, you know, loving religion my whole life the way I've always been fascinated by it, I never once considered ministry as something that I wanted to do. Never. Well, but as soon as I as soon as I heard that idea, that notion of psychedelic assisted therapy and a psychedelic chaplaincy, yeah. I was like, oh man, like maybe maybe that might be something worthwhile. That might be something worthwhile. I mean, what are you doing with this podcast? I mean, you're you're a, you're an, you're evangelizing people. Mm, people help people. People helping people. That's right. <laughs> oh, <sighs> So we come to the end of this we've one. Come, now we've come to the end. What did you think, man? I what? liked it. I enjoyed it. There was a, definitely a lot of detail about Timothy Leary that I did not know. Me too, man. So, Yeah, so uh, this was um, what happened to Timothy Leary. What happened to him? And now you know. Yep. See you guys. Adios. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>